Okay, I want everyone to do me a favor. Everybody take a deep breath and let it out. There are some times in the midst of life when it's really good to just do that. Um, individually, sometimes we just need to take a deep breath and let it out and then say, it's going to be okay. And then sometimes, corporately, we need to do that. We just need to kind of step back and take a deep breath and just say, God's in control. And that's what we want to do this morning a little bit. We're, we're still in the middle of our series on Joseph, but it seems that Moses, in this section, chapter 41, sort of does that. We have been talking about characters and their actions and right and wrong, and it seems that that chapter 41, he just kind of throws enough hints in there for us to say, it's going to be okay. Even when it doesn't seem like it's going to be okay. Even when your life may seem like, well, the life of, of David when he writes in, in Psalm 13, he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Or maybe from John chapter 11, you've, you've felt this way before. You felt like God is supposed to come to the rescue and He chooses not to for some reason. And, and that some reason we just don't get. John writes these words in, in chapter 11. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death but for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified by it. And then these two verses that, that remind us that we're not in control and remind us that God's timetable is not our timetable. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. That's good, isn't it? We know that God loves us. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. But God, we need you now. He's going to die. But because he loved them, he delayed. And we don't like delay. And we find it hard. And yet in the midst of that delay, Jesus said the purpose is that, that God would get glory. And so wherever you are this morning, I want us to take a deep breath and I want us to, if at all possible, glorify God. And so would we take just a moment? Um, would you be willing to pray with me maybe a sentence, God, I praise you because, or God, I praise you for, um, just out loud where you sit one at a time and in a moment I will close us in prayer and then we will... And we will sing together. Father, I praise you 
because you love us. Father, we praise you for the gift of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God, we give you all glory and honor and praise this morning for who you are. We ask that you would speak to us where we are this morning. Whether that's uh, in our joy or sorrow, whether that's in uh, the fact that we feel comforted or uh, afflicted, pray that you would speak to us, encourage us. God, may we, through our actions this morning, glorify you. And we ask these things in the name of your precious Son, our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Would you stand with us? We're going to sing a song called Be Thou My Vision. You may not um, be fully ready to take a deep breath and say it's going to be okay. Um, but if not, and even if so, would you, would you sing this as a prayer? Because there are still times when we look at the world and we go, I just don't get what God is up to. And it's in that moment when we really need God to be our vision and our wisdom and our strength. So as we sing, would you, uh, would you pray? Sometimes we need to be reminded that the good guys win. I think. We were in Genesis chapter 41 this morning. I'd ask you to read this passage this week, and hopefully you've done that. We are not going to read this passage in its entirety this morning or much at all. I do want to summarize. Um, though, because sometimes... <clears throat> we forget that God is in control. Sometimes we forget that story and we focus on the characters. So Moses has been doing for the last several chapters. He's been focusing on the characters and the decisions that they have made and how those decisions have affected Joseph and how those decisions have affected the sons of Jacob. Because... Sometimes when it seems that God is not in control, then those emotions come in, worry and doubt and fear and anger and bitterness and unbelief and jealousy and pride. People have been playing a big role in this story, from Judah to Tamar to Joseph to Potiphar's wife to Potiphar himself. But in 41, Moses pulls back the curtain and allows us a glimpse into what's really going on. Allows us to see who really is in control of the messes and the blessings. And so in 41, we find that two years have passed since Joseph interpreted the dreams for the cupbearer and the baker. The cupbearer was restored to his position. The baker was killed. Two years go by. Joseph still languishing in captivity, in prison. And then Pharaoh has a dream. Two dreams, in fact. A dream of favor and a dream of famine. But no one can tell him what it means. And then the cupbearer says, Oh, wait a minute. There was this guy when I was in prison. And he told me my dream. He told me the baker's dream. And everything he said came true. And Pharaoh says, get him. So Joseph, they clean him up and and bring him before him. And 
And he says, I hear you can do this. And Joseph says, well, no, actually, I can't, but God can. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what the dreams mean. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to add a little advice to that. Here's what it means. Here's what you should do. Here's how you should solve the problem of seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And he says, appoint someone who will gather up all the excess and then when things go bad, you'll have some stored up. And Pharaoh says, who else would be better than you? Clearly God is with you. None of my magicians could interpret the dream. You've been able to. Pharaoh recognizes God's hand behind that, recognizes the wisdom of the plan and says, I'll put you in charge. Not only does he favor him, but he gives him a wife and Joseph has, Joseph has kids. And then at the end of 41, we find that everything he said comes to pass. They have seven years of plenty and they gather up all the excess. They impose a, a 20% tax on everybody and they gather a fifth of what everybody produces and then famine. And people find themselves in trouble. And we look at that and we think, that's odd. And yet throughout this story, there are these little hints that this is not just random events, but God is behind the scenes in every single detail. God is in control. He orchestrates the weather patterns. Joseph says in verse 25, God has told Pharaoh what he is about to do. God's bringing seven years of blessing. God is bringing seven years of famine. He repeats himself in 28. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. And then again in 32. The matter is determined by God. God will quickly bring it about. God's in control of the weather. And then, not only does God control the weather, but God warns the person who can do something about it what's about to happen, right? We just read that. Joseph said, God has told Pharaoh what he's about to do. Repeats that again in 32. God has told Pharaoh what he's about to do. And then, because Pharaoh is, is not a God-fearer and he can't figure what's going on, God allowed for Joseph to be brought into his presence and then gives Joseph the interpretation of the dream that he's never heard before. Verse 16, Joseph confesses to that. It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And then Pharaoh recognizes God's hand behind that in verse 39. Since God has informed you of all this, there's no one so discerning and wise as you are. God set up the situation. God warned the person in charge to do something about it. God explained to him what it all meant. And then, despite Joseph's difficulties over the last 17 years, God really has been behind the scenes. God has been moving in the direction to bless Joseph. We read in verse 51 and 52, as Joseph has kids, that Joseph confesses that God is in control and has been in control. 
Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. What's funny is he really hasn't forgotten where he came from because he gives his kids Hebrew names and not Egyptian names. But God has made me forget all my trouble. God has, God has blessed me. And then in 52, he named the second son Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. God has been behind the scenes orchestrating events. Moses pulls back the curtain and reminds us that God is in control regardless of what other people around us are doing or how my life is going. God is in control. Will we believe that? Will we believe God is in control? Because there's, there's two things that we can maybe just kind of give a, a litmus test whether we really believe that or not. We may say it, yeah, God's sovereign, God's in control, but there are two attitudes, two things that show up in our lives that remind us that we really don't, we don't, we don't believe that or we don't act on that. Worry and pride. Because what worry is, let me give you a definition of worry, it's, it's meditating on the unknown. That's what worry is. I'm, I'm meditating on the unknown. And it, and it raises my blood pressure a little because I want to know. And so I worry, what's going to happen? And I ask those questions, I'm unsure. Instead of, instead of stepping back and going, I don't know, but it's going to be okay. We worry. We meditate on the unknown. We spend energy and time and effort thinking about something that I have no control over and wondering and wondering and wondering. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4 for a moment because Paul gives us what we should do instead. In Philippians chapter 4. Beginning in, in verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is near. The reason we can rejoice is because God is near. And then he says, be anxious for nothing. Don't worry, in other words. And he talks about praying. And, and then in verse 8, he gives us this, this antidote to meditating on the unknown. He says, don't do that. Don't waste your time worrying about tomorrow. Instead, where you are right now, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. You see, the, the battle in our minds is Am I going to think about, meditate about tomorrow that I have no control over? Or am I going to think about the things that I know to be true? Am I going to remind myself of the goodness of God? Am I going to remind myself of those things that are true? He is faithful. He's proven that over and over and over again in this grand story that we just heard about condensed down for us or that we can read about anytime we want to. Am I going to think about those things? Or am I going to worry about something that... And if you're like me, see, it's not just that I think about the unknown, but my mind always tends to 
fashion that into the most negative thing possible. Here's all the bad stuff that could happen. That's where my mind tends to go. I, it's not just that I'm, I'm unsure about the future. It's, well, I don't know about the future and, and it's bad. It's not going to end up the way I want. And Paul says, instead, meditate on what you know to be true, what you know to be lovely, what you know to be right, what you know to be pure. Ultimately, all of those things are descriptors of our Savior. When we think about Him, the sacrifice that He made that you and I might be whole and complete and forgiven and redeemed. The antidote to worry is meditating on what we know to be true. When we open up this book and, and, and seek God. As Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. The other issue that, that reminds us that that we don't, really don't believe that God's in control is pride. Because what pride says is, either things aren't going the way I want them to go, or I'm not the way that I think I should be. Pride says, things aren't going the way that I think they should go, or I'm not the way that I think I should be. And both in the Old Testament and the New Testament we're reminded in Jeremiah and in Romans chapter 9 that, that there is a potter and we are clay and He really can do with us whatever He wants. And we don't like that. <laughs> we don't like that. We want to be able to make decisions and do what we want to do and not have to be a pot. We'd rather be the one to fashion the story. I'm sure Joseph would have liked to have fashioned his own story. I'm sure Joseph would have liked those 17 years to look different than they did. And here's where we really don't like this because 17 years is a long time to not be doing what I want to do and not be able to figure out what God is up to. And yet we read in 41 the beginning of a shift, a change. Where we begin to see what God is up to. In verse 56 of chapter 41 we read, When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. The people of all the earth, it doesn't say that here, but the people of all the earth, including Canaan, came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. Just this hint of what's fixing to happen in 42. When the brothers are all looking at each other going, I'm hungry. And dad says, what are you doing? Get up. I've heard there's food. And there's this beginning of reconciliation. And some of us may say, well, wait a minute. Did God really have to spend 17 years? And why couldn't He have just... And whenever we ask that question, pride is sneaking up on us. 
Why couldn't God have just? Because we don't like the way that God has orchestrated events for His glory. And that's hard. Because that's a, an honest question, I think. We look at life and we go, this isn't the way I want it to go. Why couldn't God just? And at that point in time, we have to be careful that we don't let that thought turn into pride and the next thing says, if it were up to me, I would have. Because if we stop and say, why couldn't God have and say, yet I praise you because I trust you, because I've seen your goodness. Worry and pride are symptoms of, I don't believe that God is sovereign. And my encouragement and my challenge to you this morning is that you would rest not only in His sovereignty, but in His goodness. I can't explain what God is up to, but I see a clear testimony from beginning to end that regardless of how things seem, that God really is in control and that He really is good. And we need to rest in that. We're going to sing a couple more songs this morning and we're going to get very practical. Because as, as He said, that grand story is not finished and part of that grand story is this command to go. So we're going to sing and then Sarah's going to come share with us um, her part, her small part in that story. And that's good because we've talked a lot of big picture stuff this morning and we need to bring it down and go, God is concerned about real people today in our midst. And so we're going to sing and then Sarah's going to share with us and then we're going to sing again. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for uh, this morning and for Your grace, for Your sovereign grace that woos us, that opens our eyes to Your majesty, that changes us, and then that compels us to go. You're worthy of all honor and glory and praise. Amen.